and I think of the, um, you know, the, the classic illustration of the dunghill covered with snow. Um, you're a dunghill before conversion and you're a dunghill afterward, but you're covered in snow. Now, I mean, it's not that Luther denied that regeneration takes place, but definitely his emphasis was so strongly on the forensic side, on the legal side. Well, hello and welcome to another law-abiding episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Please do come visit us at chnetwork.org. If you're looking for fellowship and community with other people who are asking questions about the Catholic <coughs> faith, then definitely come out uh, to our online community. That's community.chnetwork.org. We'd love to connect with you in there, and uh, we'd love for you to meet the other people in there. They're Pretty awesome group of people. And of course, if you want to support this and other programs and resources, then by all means, click on that donate button at chnetwork.org. Ken Hensley, we've got a lot to get to as we continue our series on Luther. Thank you so much. I've been practicing for 94 episodes. I was just going to say, you do that well. I'm so glad that you do it instead of me. It gives me a chance to breathe. It gives me a chance to get ready to say other things. Yeah, we're talking about Luther, and yourself. we've been talking about we've been talking about his doctrine of justification by faith alone, and we're going to continue for some of at least three, four, five more weeks talking about Luther's some of Luther's theology and some some of his life. But before moving on from the doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, I want us to think a little bit more about it today, Matt, and in particular what resulted from it, if you will the moral fallout of justification by faith alone, okay? But let's back up a step. We're going to move through some ideas here so that what we're putting together makes sense uh, as a coherent whole. It's not just some random thoughts. So let's go back, first of all, to Luther's feeling that he could do nothing but sin, which is how he felt, and that God could never be pleased with him. Okay, we've talked about how that with this particular background, this psychological, theological background, Luther's discovery, you know, I put that in air quotes, Luther's discovery that St. Paul was teaching justification by faith alone in the imputed righteousness of Christ was like walking through open doors into paradise. This is what Luther said. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the justice or the righteousness of God had filled me with hate. Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage became to me a gate to heaven. And all I can say here, all I really want to say here is it makes sense. Will you think about it? If at the moment that you or I look to Christ in faith, if at that instant his perfect righteousness is legally imputed, legally credited to our account, if Christ's righteousness is uh, put on us as though we, as like a robe. And from that instant, God looks at us as being as righteous as Jesus himself, and it's permanent. It, it can never change. Well, it, it's no wonder that Luther's struggle was solved by this. It's, it's no longer. I mean, it's no wonder. 
longer wonder same i use both words interchangeably yeah. <laughs> typically and, and again what you've got here too i mean and, and we're going to go into more and more of this but uh, yeah. What you have is that Luther was unsatisfied with the Catholic doctrine of justification that had satisfied and brought joy to so many saints before him, right? Uh, the, yes, the, the yes. teaching of the church that of being completely and wholly regenerated, right, in baptism, being completely mm -hmm. and wholly uh, made a new creation um, in Christ. Uh, that actually, for some reason, was a very unsettling thought to Luther because he was still a sinner afterwards, as are you and I, Ken. But Luther— but, uh, you know, but there was something about Luther's mindset, something about his psychology, something about his upbringing. We, we, we talked about those things. You're right. Many others were satisfied and happy. He was not. Okay. But the reason for Luther's joy upon his discovery within St. Paul, it, it goes even deeper than this. Because contrary to the Catholic view, Luther was committed to the idea, Matt, that, that free will is a myth. All right. Luther believed that before we are justified by faith alone and before we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are utterly enslaved to sin and we can do nothing but sin. That, that's how he felt about his life, but that's how he believed about everyone. Even the act of faith, he said, that is the act of first faith in which we are made right in God's sight is something Luther taught that God works in us without our cooperation. In other words, I mean, literally, God at a point in time, literally out of the blue, just zaps us. And this, of course, is very different than the Catholic view that God reaches out to us by his grace. We speak of prevenient grace um, and that we cooperate with that grace as we cooperate. That is, as we engage that grace, God gives us more grace. There's a cooperation that goes on. Luther completely denied that. God zaps us out of the blue without our cooperation. Okay, horrified by Luther's rejection of human freedom, the Catholic priest and scholar Erasmus wrote his Discourse on Free Will. He wrote his book called The Discourse on Free Will. Luther responded with a book titled On the Bondage of the Will. In this work, Luther describes human beings as being like dumb horses who are entirely under the control of whoever happens to be riding them, whether God or Satan. In fact, he says in this book, I mean, he, he goes in, in, into length on this, but he says that before conversion, Satan is in the saddle and he's riding you and you're just like a dumb horse. At conversion, God essentially just walks up and slaps Satan, knocks him off the saddle and God climbs onto the saddle and then God is riding you. But either way, there is no cooperation. Satan's in the saddle or God's in the saddle. This is what Luther said. With regard to God, and in all that bears on salvation or, or damnation, man has no free will, but is a captive prisoner and bond slave, either to the will of God or to the will of Satan. Okay, let's move. You know, it's fascinating slides. to me that Go that's ahead. how he would describe that um, uh, for, for a number of reasons. But it's, it's tied to that whole question of whether or not righteousness is something that is infused or something that is imputed, right? So... Uh, you're still a dumb horse the next day, right? After Satan's mm -hmm. kicked out of the mm -hmm. saddle and God's riding the saddle. Uh, he's still looking at an analogy as though you're still somebody stupid now, just like you were somebody stupid yesterday, as opposed to the Catholic view, which is like you're wholly regenerated, not just that you got a different person pulling yeah. your strings, right? Um, it's, it's, I think those two things are, are so very, very tied together because, again, Luther's not thinking mm -hmm. like, I have been wholly regenerated. He's simply thinking... I have a 
different master who is going to be pulling my strings differently. Yeah, yeah, and I think of the um, you know the the classic illustration of the dunghill covered with snow. Um, you're a dunghill before conversion, and you're a dunghill afterward, but you're covered in snow. Now, I mean, it's not that Luther denied that regeneration takes place, but definitely his emphasis was so strongly on the forensic side, on the legal side. And and you're right, Luther believed that this enslavement, as it were, continues after our conversion as well. In fact, he said that we can do, I mean, as Christians now, we can do nothing and we are not responsible in any way for our progress in holiness, okay? Just like the first act of faith just comes from God out of the blue, God zaps us without our cooperation. Well, the same thing of our Christian lives. We are not responsible in any way to make progress in holiness, Luther taught. Okay, in fact, in in preaching justification by faith alone, what Luther wanted to do, Matt, was he wanted to free Christians from the burden of thinking, of imagining, of believing that their salvation depended on their own efforts in any way, in anything that they had to do. So, Unlike Noah, you know, who had to trust God and build an ark in order to be saved through the flood. Unlike Abraham, who had to put his trust in God and had to leave Ur of the Chaldees in order to inherit the land that God was promising him. Unlike the man that Jesus commanded to go to the pool of Siloam and wash in order to receive his sight, um, according to Luther, there is nothing we can do and there is nothing we have to do whatsoever yeah and Listen just to, to quote. just to jump in there yeah and before you get into this quote because i think this quote illustrates yeah. the difference between that and something you might hear even from a catholic theologian right or from a catholic preacher like catholics talk about this kind of thing all the time um and and use this as a rhetorical flair like you could never possibly um do enough to repay christ for what he did for us on the cross right. um or there's no amount of helping the poor that god could look down and say okay you've helped the poor enough now I've decided that you're good enough to enter heaven, right? It is, is the grace of Christ that lets us in. But Luther's not talking about it in a rhetorical sense. Like Luther is making, he's taking a theological stand on this and taking it a lot further than that. Um, and the, the quote that um, you mentioned, we, we, we would say as Catholics, uh, you have to do those things, but you can't just do those things alone and expect that doing those things will, will earn you a salvation apart mm-hmm. from the grace of God. But Luther's taking mm-hmm. it a step further. Yeah, Luther is talking here about, he's extending this idea of bondage, Matt. He's saying that we are completely in bondage to Satan, and then at conversion, we're completely in bondage to God. Um, The first act of faith, there's no cooperation in it, and our entire lives as Christians, there is no cooperation whatsoever. Uh, There's nothing we have to do, and there's nothing we can do, and we're not responsible. Listen to what he says here. Because this is a pretty stunning quotation. It does not help the soul if the body is adorned with the sacred robes of the priest or dwells in sacred places or is occupied with sacred duties or prays. Okay, the first part I'm reading, I'm thinking... It doesn't matter if you pray. Yeah, yeah. the first part I'm reading, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, Luther, you're right. Of course, it doesn't matter if your body is adorned with, you know, sacred robes or anything like that. But then he says, it does not help the soul... If one prays, fasts, abstains from certain kinds of foods, or does any work that can be done by the body and in the body, even contemplation, meditation, and all that the soul can do does not help 
one thing and only one thing is necessary for Christian life, righteousness, and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel. It, it, it's it, okay. He, he's saying, Matt, there's, it doesn't matter if you pray. It doesn't matter if you seek God. It doesn't matter if you, it, it, not, nothing matters. Meditation, contemplation, fasting, none of that matters. Completely contrary to the entire, to the teaching of the entire history of Christianity. He's saying the only thing that matters is the gospel. And the gospel comes telling you that, guess what? By faith alone, you can be credited the righteousness of Christ. And that's all that matters is knowing that. But again, this, to that. I mean, there's so many internal inconsistencies with this, you know, already. Nothing you can do <clears throat> can contribute to your salvation. And yet you're, you're supposed to have faith, right? You're a dumb horse who can't make any decisions for itself. But then you're well, still God, required to have faith, right? I mean, and, and God just but, God just gives you the faith. But then again, so God comes by and knocks Satan off the horse. Did you t- ask him to? Like, did you? I mean, it's, no. you see where no. where it's there's already no a problem. Um, there's there's no cooperation of any kind. Because if you ask him to, then you can take credit in some way. That's something that you have done. I mean, this is that's part what of, he's wanting to, to like, avoid. Kind of key in on or why he. Okay. People might say, well, why does it matter to Luther that we don't have free will? It matters because the second that you say that I have faith because, you know, or the second yeah. that I say I cooperated, that's, that's the second that you're robbing God of some piece of the glory in Luther's mind. Yes, see, here, here's where we're getting back to what you and I pounded on in our series, A Damning System of Works Righteousness, that basic idea that is really at the heart of the Reformation conception of justification, and that is that unless... God is doing everything without any cooperation on our part, then God is not going to get all the glory. Then we've earned our salvation. Then we have something in which to boast. It's that same kind of thing. Now, we're going to come at this in a new way here, and I think this might be instructive to some people listening that maybe haven't heard this part, but what this leads to is a discussion of law and gospel and the radical distinction that Luther drew between the two. Okay, so let me dig into that a little bit. Okay, in Luther's view... The Word of God comes to us in a twofold form. It comes to us as law and it comes to us as gospel. And Luther said it's absolutely critical that we understand the difference between the two. In fact, Luther said that the distinction between law and gospel is the most important distinction to be made in understanding the Bible. So let me elaborate a little bit. Okay, first, the law. What Luther is saying is whenever we hear God commanding us to do anything, Whenever you hear God telling you to do anything in the Word of God or in your conscience, that's law. Okay, now, God's law is something that we know intuitively as human beings because we're made in the image and likeness of God, and he's written it on our hearts. In fact, when Moses comes out with the Ten Commandments, he wasn't creating something new. He was just making explicit the moral law that is etched into our very beings as men and women made in the image of God. Jesus summarized that law, the commandments of God, when he said, all of the law is contained in this, that we love the Lord our God with all our hearts and love our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, so far so good. Now, it's critical, Luther said, that we understand that the law demands love and obedience to God from the heart. It's not satisfied by outward fulfillment. And you and I would say yes to that, okay? Luther goes further. He says, before the fall, man could fulfill the law, and it was his joy to fulfill the law. 
After the fall, everything has changed now. Now, because we try to keep God's law and we fail, it's no longer a source of joy for us. Instead, the law of God is a source of sorrow. It's a source of pain. Now, the law does nothing but reveal to us our sinfulness. It even increases our sinfulness as we find the desire growing for that which is, um, you know, forbidden. The law does nothing now, Luther is saying, but accuse us and deliver us up to God's wrath. And there is truth in this. I so think that's all the law does, right? I mean, th there is yeah, truth that's in that, all but it before does. you get into that, that's all it does. Before you get into all that, I just want to point out that the very longest chapter in the entire Bible is Psalm 119. Mm -hmm. It is, uh, let's see, 176 oh, wow. verses long. It's an acrostic poem talking about the great delight that the psalmist takes in the law and how beautiful yeah. and joyful and life-giving the law is. So, just, Yeah, you got a problem just, right there. <laughs> that's, that's my counterpoint. That's my counterpoint. Yeah, no, you got a problem right there. Luther is emphasizing something here, and he's emphasizing something we, we can see in Romans chapter 7, where Paul said, if it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known that it, uh, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. The very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. You're right. Okay, Luther is focusing on the fact that after the fall, God's commandments are, are a source of sorrow to us, he's saying, because we try to do them and we fail, and all they can do is condemn us. In fact, this is how Luther put it. The function of the law is to show sins, to create sorrow, and to lead into hell. Um, Luther scholar Paul Althaus uh, put Luther's teaching like this. He said, the law was an expression of God's love. It was. Now it is the tool of his wrath. The law once made man rejoice, but now it has become a terrible thing for him. And okay, at this point, I think it's great just those listening to this, now just take what, what you just said, Matt, about Psalm 119, and at least you're going to be scratching your head. Because if what Luther is saying is the whole story on the law, then how come the author of Psalm 119 goes on for 176 verses saying, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. It is like sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb, you know, you know what I mean? I delight in your law. And because I walk in your ways, I'm wiser than all my uh, you know, teachers and so forth and so forth. Okay, so just put that in. But, but, but track with Luther f a little bit more. Okay, because of this, because of his view of the law and what he said about the law, what Luther wants to say to us is anyone who imagines that he can please God or achieve righteousness, certainly, by keeping the law is completely misunderstanding the law and misusing the law. No, whenever we hear God in the Bible or in our own consciences commanding us to do anything, this is law, and the law's sole purpose is to condemn us, to show us our need for grace, our need to be justified by the legally imputed righteousness of Christ. Okay. Just now, so you know, by the way, this is not only out of harmony, I was about to say, this is not only out of harmony with... Um, the psalmist, but it's also out of out of harmony with the large larger Christian philosophical tradition, which would say um, it is a joy to align yourself with reality, and in in mm -hmm. so, it, 
in any way that the natural law encourages us to think and act and believe, that's actually not a... Con- there's condemnation when you violate it, but to act in accordance with it is actually uh, to act in accordance with order and reality, which is actually the only real way that one can actually be happy, <laughs> right? So uh, we're not just violating Psalm 119 here. We're also violating the full Christian philosophical tradition and even kind of the Aristotelian tradition. So just throwing it out there. No, yeah, no, that that's correct, and I'm— I'm taking Luther's side here. I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate for Luther, and I'm saying that what Luther would say to that is, of course, as God hops in the saddle and rides in my life, then I will begin in the ways that God wants me to. I will begin to live according to the law of God, and I will find, find joy in that. Um, but he's talking about the doctrine of justification, see, and he's basically saying, after the fall the main purpose of the law is to drive us to despair because we can't keep it, okay? And then, thank God, the Word of God doesn't come only to us in the form of law. He wants to then turn the corner and say, it also comes to us in the form of the gospel. And the two have opposite functions. And and I can put it like this. Luther put it like this. Whereas the law says, Matt, you must do this. You must do that in order to be blessed by God. The gospel comes in and it says, don't worry, Matt. All of the law's demands have been met in Jesus Christ. Fear no longer, only believe. And this is how Luther put it. The gospel most beautifully follows the law. The law introduces us to sin and overwhelms us with the knowledge of it. It does this so that we may seek to be freed and desire grace. Now, I I want to say at this point that there is truth. There is definite truth in what Luther is saying here. St. Paul does describe the law as a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It's true that God's law reveals to us our sin. Paul even says it increases sin within us. This is true. But see, here's a, well, here's one crucial difference. Notice that when Paul goes on from Romans 7, where he talks about the coveting and how the law stirred up coveting within him, When he goes on from 7 to Romans 8 to elaborate on the solution that God has given in the gospel, Paul doesn't say the solution is to be found in the legal crediting of Christ's righteousness to our account. Instead, Paul begins to talk in Romans 8 about the Spirit. Here I'm coming to your regeneration, the things you said. He talks about the Spirit and how, and now I'm quoting Paul, the just requirement of the law might now be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And this is the Catholic view. Salvation is not about God legally imputing righteousness to our accounts. Salvation is about God making us, changing us, making us the kind of people who can love God and walk in God's ways, being regenerated, being sanctified by the Spirit, like Paul says in Romans 6, when he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he's talking about the Spirit. So again, the Luther's view is completely forensic. 
The law drives us to despair. The gospel tells us Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. The Catholic view is, yes, it is true that the law has that function of leading us to cry out for grace. But when grace comes, it comes in the form of God grabbing us with our cooperation and changing us into the kind of people who can love God and walk in his commandments. We don't love God perfectly. We have to cry out, Lord, I, I love, help my lack of love. We don't trust God completely. We have to cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's why we can go to confession. That's why we can receive Christ's grace again and again and again. But there's this whole living path where we cooperate with God's grace and we pursue holiness and he leads us forward toward eternal life. All right? And I think like that's something? the key distinction. Yeah, the, I think that's the key distinction here. I, I was going to say something about circumcision, but I don't know. I don't think it's a fruitful direction to take no, this I'll, conversation. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll cut you off on that one. Thank you for that. Uh, thank you. But um, I think, too, that Luther, in some ways, and you'll see this more with Calvin than you do with Luther, and you certainly see it with Islam, um, but there's almost like a, like a sense that once the relationship is is restored, once the once someone is in right relationship with God, what it means is they are a servant who is no longer going to be thrown in prison, still standing before someone who's so infinitely sovereign and beyond them that, like, you know, they're just glad that they didn't get zapped, right, in some ways. Uh, there's not, like, that this deep abiding sense of relationship, like— some of the stuff that Paul says later on, like it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? Um, what I read when I see all these things and these legal creditations of justification and the whole imputation concept, what I see is um, I no longer die because Christ has cloaked me, right? That's the vibe that I get from what mm -hmm. Luther is saying here. Not the if you were to isolate the things that Paul says in Romans and isolate certain parts of Romans from other parts of Romans, I think you could come up with what Luther has here, but I don't think you can read it in light of the other things that Paul says about being a new creation, about being, um, you know, having the bath of rebirth, right? As he tells Timothy, like to be truly reborn um, in baptism. I don't think you can read those things. I think in order to, to make the argument that Luther is making, you kind of have to isolate stuff and kind of have to minimize other things that Paul says that are clearly part of something that Paul is strongly trying to teach to various churches. What what you have to do, what you have to do is you have to take all those other parts you're talking about and remove them from the discussion of justification. You have to remove those and put them in another category. That is the category of sanctification. See, because I want to say, I mean, Luther, uh, Lutherans listening to this are, are, are going to say, you know, you're acting like uh, Luther had no doctrine of regeneration or he didn't believe that the Holy Spirit, and you know, uh, comes to indwell the, those who, who, who believe in Christ and that they grow in holiness. You're acting like Luther doesn't believe any of that. And so, so I have to make it really clear, Matt, Luther did believe that. But he separates that. He's when he talks about justification, how we are made right in the sight of God, it's all on the side I'm talking about. It's all on the side of we cannot please God. We're sinners. We can't do anything. The law can do nothing but condemn us and show us our sinfulness and increase sinfulness within us and lead us to cry out for grace. 
the gospel comes to us and says, don't worry, only believe and you will be the alien righteousness of Christ will be credited to your account. And, and Luther and Lutherans will say that's justification. You're, you Catholics are taking in all these passages about regeneration and all that, which have nothing to do with justification, they would say, and you're, and you're blending them all together, okay? Yeah, so this is where it's also important to uh, point out that I did not come from a Reformed Christianity. I didn't come from a Reformed right. branch of Protestantism. So this is not how we talked about it at all. So when I started to encounter Calvinists and those yeah. from a Reformed tradition, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you're talking about these, like, these are two separate things. And we talked salvation and sanctification in my Nazarene tradition for sure. But we didn't talk about, we didn't pit pieces of Paul against one another in the same way. Um, right. We may right, have pitted pieces right. of Paul against one another, but not like this. Right. Right. Okay, so, but that's the mindset you have to get into to understand Luther, though. He's talking about justification, and he views justification as completely separate from the issue of being regenerated and growing in grace and becoming better and all of that. Okay, so let's go forward a little bit in this understanding. Okay, Luther's intense desire, Matt, to emphasize this, to emphasize that justification is by faith alone in the legally credited righteousness of Christ, and to emphasize that obedience to God has nothing to do with this, with, with our justification. This led him to make some of the most um, wild, um, I like to use, I'll, I'll, in kindness, I'll use the word colorful, to make some of the most colorful statements of all about God's law and about the need to obey God's law. Uh, here are a few of them. Keep the law by all means, but if you do not, you need not be troubled in your conscience, for the transgression of the law cannot possibly condemn you. Here's another one. Thus let the Christian understand that it matters not whether he keeps the law. And, and by the law, he means the moral commandments of God, okay? Because, because again, he, he defines law as any time God comes to you telling you to do something. That's law. Let the Christian understand that it matters not whether he keeps the law or not, he may do what is forbidden and leave alone what is commanded, for neither is a sin. Um, here's another one. To the gallows with Moses. Luther's advice to Christians was that they, and I quote now, chase that stammering and stuttering Moses with his law back to the Jews and not allow his terrible threats to, <laughs> to intimidate them. That, that's what he encouraged uh, uh, Christians to do. And here's one more. Moses must ever be looked upon with suspicion, even as upon a heretic, excommunicated, damned, worse than the Pope and the devil. Now, hey, it's just a second here. I like Moses. Yeah, but, but again, these kinds of statements can be misunderstood. Because on the, on the one hand, well, I'll put it like this. To be fair to Luther, we need to have it crystal clear in our minds that when Luther makes these kinds of extraordinary and wild and colorful statements, he isn't literally encouraging Christians to not give a damn about morality. He's not really doing that. His motive is to make it crystal clear by using exaggerated language, to make it crystal clear that nothing we can do can have any effect on our salvation. We do not cooperate with God in the first act of faith, and we don't cooperate with God um, at any point along the road to eternal life. Okay, God is sitting in the saddle. We get to heaven because Christ's righteousness was credited to us. 
not because of anything we can do. And that's why he wants to emphasize, you know, forget about Moses, chase that stammering, stuttering Moses back to Egypt or back to the Jews and all that. He's basically saying, you have to got to get so far away from the belief that anything you do um, has an effect on whether you're saved or not, that he speaks this way. You know, uh, yeah, well, the danger in this, though, doing. I mean, there, well, there's a hundred dangers in this. Uh, but I think part of it is that um, there is that you can almost see like a soft Marcionism in some of it, right? Uh, so how do you deal with yeah. the question that Jesus does not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, right? Um, that you still have to reckon with the law having been there for a reason, right? And like, what was the law there in the first place? And, you know, by soft Marcionism, I mean, I mean, Marcion was one of the earliest heretics in the church whose deal was where, well, the God yeah. of the Old Testament talks so differently than the God of the New Testament, they must be different gods, or the one of them must, must have been a false god, and now we've got the real one. You know, I, I mean, that's, in some ways... Well, with the emphasis, I would it, say with the emphasis on the word soft, because Luther's reply would be, yeah. no, it's the same God. His word comes to us in two forms, law to drive us to despair so that we seek grace, and then the gospel giving us the answer. And so, no, there's no contradiction in, in all my that, all in, my in, all in my mind. Wesleyan Armenian hackles are getting raised by this stuff. I apologize. So, yeah, and you have many hackles. What? What's I have a hackle, many hackles. By the way, has anybody yeah, ever told to give up hackle? those hackles if I was to be perfect? But I walked away sad because I have <laughs> many hackles. So, yeah, I know you have so many hackles, and it would be very sad for you to give them up. Yes. Okay, so. Again, devil's advocate for Luther, okay? Okay? He's wanting to emphasize when he makes these wild statements, he's wanting to emphasize God's sovereignty and salvation and the fact that there's nothing we can do. We don't cooperate at the beginning. We don't cooperate at any stage along the way. And he makes these wild statements because he's so adamant that Christians not hear the commandments of God in Scripture or in conscience coming to them. He's so adamant that they not hear the commandments of God and become tempted to believe that they need to obey the law of God in order to be pleasing to God, okay? He wants them to avoid this temptation that he, that he speaks at times as though he is encouraging sin. That's the other side of the equation. For instance, listen to what he said. I advise everyone who is able to drive away these satanic thoughts and you know what he's referring to as satanic thoughts? The thought that, that God's commandments are something we actually need to, to obey in order to be pleasing to God or in order to anything. He's saying, I advise everyone to, who is able to drive away these satanic thoughts by diverting the mind. To do so, for instance, by thinking of a pretty girl or money-making or drink or by means of some other vivid emotion. He's basically saying, if the law of God is coming to you and the commandment, you know, Matt, to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you become ever so tempted to believe that this is something you actually need to do to be pleasing to God or to please God, then it, it would be better for you to stop and just divert your mind and start thinking about the stock market or start thinking about pretty girls or, or anything, gambling, you know, just divert your mind away from that satanic thought. And here's one example. Luther thought that chastity was impossible and that it was unnatural even though, of course, St. Paul was, was chaste, the Lord himself was chaste, and others have been, he believed that it was impossible and unnatural. This is what he said. Chastity is as little within our power as the working of miracles. 
He who resolves to remain single should give up his title to being a human being and prove that he is either an angel or a spirit. As little as we can do without eating and drinking, so it is impossible to do without women. They are fools who attempt to overcome temptations by fasting, prayer, chastisement, for such temptations and immoral attacks can easily be overcome where there are plenty of maidens and women. Now, you, you read that. I want to be a secretary in that it, office. It, Jeez. It sure sounds like Luther is saying the worst thing in the world would, would be for you to believe that you actually need to pursue chastity and begin to pray for it and fast for it and anything like that. That's the worst thing in the world that you should fall into. It would be better that you just simply go ahead and fall to your temptations. Yeah. In fact, so because the nugget of truth that, that's in here is it's true that you can, there's nothing you can do or not do to cause God to love you or not love you or to love you more or to love you less, right? Because you are infinitely beloved mm-hmm. by God. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying, like, it doesn't matter what you do. You could, you could still break that relationship. God can still love you infinitely. And you can condemn yourself to hell by breaking that relationship on your end. He's taking a. This is why I think it's so insidious, and and it's also it's also why it's so hard to 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 help somebody who's like this is the way they've thought their whole life. And and you know that like the hardest questions that we get at the Coming Home Network are people who are trying to wrap their minds around the Catholic view of justification when this is the view of justification that they've had their whole lives. Because it's mm-hmm. so close in so many ways, right? And it takes so many concepts that really are intrinsic to historic Christian thought on these matters, but it just like shifts them about just a little bit, or it takes like a thing that is supposed to be one thing and makes it two or three things, and it just becomes like nail and jello to the wall, man. L- L- Luther is just fighting throughout this, he's fighting against what what he perceives to be the entire Catholic worldview. He was struggling as a monk. He was fasting and praying, and, and yet he just felt he was nothing but sin, and he could do nothing but sin. He comes to his view now that, oh man, we are totally enslaved to the devil before God just sovereignly regenerates us, and he takes the seat, and then we're totally enslaved to God. There's no cooperation of the will at any point in the, in the whole affair. Our justification is a legal crediting of Christ's righteousness to our account, there's nothing we can do before. There's nothing we can do after. And he's just so strong on that that he wants to say praying is useless. Meditation is useless. You know, fasting, any of these things, they're completely u- useless. In other words, it, it's God sitting on the the uh, saddle and it's God alone. He drives it and there's nothing you can do. No, no cooperation. In fact, Luther hated celibacy. He believed that celibacy was impossible. I mean, he, because he believed that chastity was impossible, he referred to the vow of chastity as an abomination. He called it worse than adultery. Uh, Luther said that parents should be dissuaded from counseling their children to adopt the religious state, to become monks, to become nuns, as they were surely making an offering of their children to the devil. Luther hated celibacy and the monastic vows. This is what he said. The day has come not only to abolish forever those unnatural laws, but to punish, he's talking about the monastic vows. The day has come not only to abolish forever those unnatural laws, but to punish 
with all the rigor of the law, such as make them, to destroy convents, abbeys, priories, and monasteries, and in this way present their ever being uttered. He hates the whole affair. And in fact, as you know from his preaching um, of the freedom of the gospel, it did lead to a lot of iconoclasm um, where Luther's followers and followers of the Reformation, um, they, you know, they stormed churches. Um, they dragged the altars outside and burned them. They dragged priests outside and beat them up, taking statues and burning them, windows and breaking them. In fact, it soon led to the peasant revolt where thousands and thousands of German peasants were put to death by the authorities because they were rising up against, um, against all that was Catholic. In Zwingli, Zurich, it led to the uh, divorce being legalized. Did you know that one? I did not know that, but it makes sense because, uh, you know, again, if it doesn't matter that you're controlling your bodily passions as a single man, then why would it matter if you mm -hmm. control your bodily passions passions as a married man, right? If none of this stuff matters, I mean, you could see how this could devolve into complete relativism on like a ton of different moral issues. I mean, chastity is sort of the test case here, but it could devolve into relativism on just about any issue you wanted to if you thought that by, you know, acting morally. And I think, yeah, and I know, think were, that it did, you know. Yeah, L L Luther, I, I'd say, begins, he begins by encouraging monks and nuns, I mean, advocating that they violate their vows and get married. And Luther did the same. Luther married a nun himself, that is a, a, a nun had, who had rejected her vows, Catherine von Bora. Um, but it goes further. He encouraged another man, a, a rich landgrave named Philip of Hesse. He encouraged him to secretly take a second wife because the man uh, t was telling Luther that he had this uh, mistress on the side and he couldn't quit committing adultery with her. So Luther said, well, then just marry them both, you know, marry her as well. And Luther justified it by making reference to the polygamy that is practiced by some of the Old Testament persons. Abraham, Which, by the way, just so you know, just a little side note, um, there are occasions of polygamy in the Old Testament, and uh, as a scripture scholar friend of mine says, uh, if you think that the Bible advocates for polygamy, you've never read any of those stories, because every time polygamy shows up in the Old Testament, it goes very, <laughs> very poorly. Very, very poorly. Yeah. So. Well, there's Sola Scriptura for you. You know, Luther looks and he goes, well, there are examples of Men in the Old Testament have more than one wife, so Philip, you know, just go ahead and marry the second one. There's a Sola Scriptura beginning to unravel a little bit right there. Okay, but I think that it's clear to anyone who really looks at Luther's life and listens to all that he said, I think it's pretty clear that the freedom of the gospel, as Luther would put it, it had its effect not just on Luther's teaching, uh, but on the moral life of Luther himself. Um, here's something that Heinrich Bullinger, the Swiss reformer, wrote about Luther. So here's one of his partner reformers. This is what he said about Luther. It is clear as daylight and undeniable that no one has ever written more vulgarly, more coarsely, more unbecomingly in matters of faith and Christian chastity and modesty in all serious matters than Luther. No, no one has written more vulgarly on these issues than, than Luther, he says. I'm quoting again from Heinrich Bullinger. There are writings of Luther which would not be excused if they were written by a shepherd of swine and not by a distinguished shepherd of souls. And I, I think that we've, we've read some of them already um, in, the, in the proceeding. But I'll give a couple more examples. Melanchthon, Luther's disciple and co close friend, 
I mean, he loved Luther. Well, Melanchthon didn't believe the rumors that were floating around at the time, and there were plenty of rumors, that Luther was committing fornication with various young nuns who he had encouraged to escape the, the nunnery. But Melanchthon did admit that Luther had begun to act like a buffoon, his word, that Luther was acting like a buffoon, that all of the young nuns were chasing him around, and that he married Catherine von Bora in part um, to quell these rumors. Um, but here's, here's another example. In that his debate with Luther, Erasmus was bothered um, not just by what Luther said, not just by his communication, but by the way he communicated. Here's something that Erasmus said about Martin Luther. I could put up with him calling me stupid, ignorant, drunkard, addle-brained, thick-skulled, or doltish. So apparently Luther said all those things about Erasmus. I am a human being, and such insulting terms are human. But not content with such epithets, Luther represents me as a hog. He makes me a despiser of sacred scripture, and he says I am merely covering up the worst form of godlessness. He proudly boasts of having the Spirit, but who would believe that the Spirit of Christ dwells in a heart from which proceed words that reveal such arrogance and bitterness, such hostility, calumny, and scurrility? And by the way, uh, there are a lot of things that you've read today that are a little bit of, you know, a little bit colorful, perhaps a little bit scandalous, a little bit earthy. Uh, mm -hmm. But there are plenty of things that Luther said in his letters and in uh, his discourses that are probably not good for us to be reading aloud on the air here, right? I mean, that's some people get a kick out mm -hmm. of these things. There's actually even if you uh, if you want to go blow a bunch of time there's the luther insult generator if you just go look that up online you can go and just refresh it over and over again and just have luther the luther bot insult you and it's just a collection of mm -hmm, insult mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. insult and insult upon <coughs> insult um yeah I mean, he's very colorful yeah uh, you could say that but well, he's also not exactly measured in the way that he describes us but things. here i am playing here i am playing devil's advocate for the position again a little bit because many will say okay look that's luther Luther was a body guy. He was a beer-drinking, body, a sensual man. That's Luther. And they will say, but there's no evidence that justification by faith alone as a doctrine led to a general you know, tendency to immorality, that it led to leniency. Mm -hmm. And all I can say there is, well, Luther said it did. I mean, Luther himself said it did. I was about a to say, you just quotes. read a bunch of things that said that Luther was the one who said that it didn't matter whether or not he was following any kind of moral code or decorum <laughs> so yeah, well i mean i hate to be like he that he did but. say that yeah he, he did say that but people will say people will say well that's luther there's no evidence that the doctrine he taught justification by faith alone would lead to this kind of leniency in in moral issues and and what i want to say here is that well luther said that it did listen to what he wrote unfortunately it is our daily experience that now under the gospel the people entertain greater and bitterer hatred and envy and are worse with their avarice and money-grabbing than before under the papacy. Another quote, The people feel they are free from the bonds and fetters of the Pope, but now they want to get rid also of the gospel and of all the laws of God. <laughs> you, you, you feel like saying, duh, you know, you're surprised that they want to get rid of all the laws of God when you've been saying in a thousand different ways, take Moses and, you know, put him on the gallows and drive him back to the Egypt or whatever. Here's another quote. Everybody thinks the Christian liberty and licentiousness of the flesh are one and the same thing. As if now 
everybody was allowed to do what he wants. See, he's he's but trying he to contradict kind of that. He said that though. In many ways, he said things that would just totally open the door to that, and yet he wants to say, "Hey, look, I don't mean by Christian liberty licentiousness, but a lot many of my followers are taking it in that way and they're running with it." Here's one more quote. But I do Avarice, mean, if you're thinking the, about following the law, think about a pretty girl instead, right? Or why are you so upset about this other stuff? Yeah. Don't you understand that there are maidens everywhere and they could uh, get, take your mind off this stuff in a minute? Like, yeah, get yourself to Vegas. Some of those people are taking you at your word, Martha. Get get some free drinks and uh, check out the girls, you know, and you won't have to struggle with this temptation to believe you need to be obeying God's law. One more quote. Avarice, debauchery, drunkenness, blasphemy, lying, and cheating are far more prevalent now than they were under the papacy. This state of morals brings general discredit on the gospel and its preachers. As the people say, if this gospel is true, the person professing it would be more pious. I'm going to close with this. Matt, I remember having a conversation, a couple of evangelical friends who are of this mindset regarding the gospel. We were walking around in the city of uh, Flagstaff one night. We were talking. And one of them said, you know, I think that if my wife died, I don't think I would get married again. I think I would just have a girlfriend and maybe we would live together, something like that. And I, being the only Catholic in the crew, you know, I said, Something along the lines of, hey man, that is contrary to the commandments of God. Guess what response I got? Hensley. Was it something? We're not under the law. Something like earlier? Yeah. It was Hensley. We're not under the law. Well, if you're not under the law after your wife dies, how are you under the law while your wife is alive? This is, see, these are the kind of like, intellectual like roundabouts i've had with some friends of the reformed tradition over and over again and here's the thing i like so so this is why i want to be kinder to them than i've been to the things that we've said about luther is that all these people that i know are actually moral people like they say that this stuff doesn't matter they would double down on the ideological Mm -hmm. aspects of what luther's saying here they would even maybe use the flashy language uh that luther would say to say you know if you must sin sin boldly (laughs) right or or, or some of the other things that, that Luther would say about, you know, it doesn't matter whether you do anything good or bad or not. But these people still all end up trying to do the right thing, for the most part, to the extent that they believe that what they're doing is trying because they're just donkeys being ridden by God. But still, it's, it's, it's yeah, such a I, thing that's yeah. it's steeped in so much rhetoric that, you know, you go layer under layer to try and find where the real Martin Luther is. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Luther is exaggerating for effect. But there are a lot of people who are taking Luther pretty literally, and they go so far against Luther's concepts that it doesn't take long for what Luther is saying to open 5,000 Pandora's boxes and create all these different movements, including some, you know, that would go all the way in the other direction and towards Puritanism. So I'm just saying that a mess was made here, man. Uh yeah, that's kind of what we're talking about today is the unraveling, the moral unraveling that occurs from the doctrine of sola fide, from justification by by faith alone. And I think what what you said, though, it's good and thank God that most of the sincere Christians that hold these views don't just go off and live like animals. And that's because, again, the spirit of God is in them and uh, the law of God is is written on the tables of their hearts. And so they kind of know um, although there can be a lot of verbal, you know, grace, 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 you know, I refer to these hyper grace churches 
that emphasize God's grace and it doesn't matter what you do and things like that. They yeah, but all those people still know better than to cheat on their wives. You know what I'm saying? They still know yeah, better they do. than to cheat on their wives. So Yeah, they're not they're not like this pastor I heard one time at a mega church in Texas who said literally this. I heard him say this on tape. He said, If you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior tonight, his righteousness will be credited to your account and you are saved. He said, I don't care whether this part I'm paraphrasing, but this is it. I don't care if you leave this building tonight and you go out and you devote your life to, to opening up a string of whorehouses. He said, I don't care if you're in one of them. When the second coming occurs, you will go up through the roof into heaven. <laughs> and with that. Again, that's the natural, that's the, that's the logical end of what Luther's saying here. But I bet you nobody went out of there and started a string of whorehouses, right? Because again, no. it's so hard to separate the rhetoric from everything. And and again, as you were just saying um, just a moment ago, justification and sanctification are talked about as though they are two different kinds of things. And so it is sometimes hard to, to parse it all out. So, Okay, we, we've been going a long time. So let me, do, let me just conclude by saying this week we looked, as it were, at the unraveling of sola fide. And next week, maybe the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the, the, the unraveling of sola scriptura. Sola fide was the material principle of the Reformation, the main doctrinal issue. Sola scriptura was the main formal issue of the Reformation. And uh, we're going to see how that one unraveled just as much. Anyway, that's it. Right. I've gone on too long, so I'm going to just zip it up right now. Zip it up. We got it. Exhibit A. All right, so... Hopefully we've gotten a little bit more ground covered this week. We've got a lot more ground yet to cover and uh, trying to unpack the thought of Martin Luther and kind of what drove him to articulate things the way that he did. Go back and watch some of the other episodes. If this is where you dove in, then please go and figure out how we got to where we got. And come visit us at chnetwork.org uh, if you want to find more resources from the Coming Home Network. If you want to f plug into our community, we welcome you to do that as well. That's community.chnetwork.org. Org. We are also fully supported mm -hmm. by generous donors because we don't have much to sell. So go to chnetwork.org and click give. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you again. All right. I'll see you later. Zip it up. <laughs>